What up, fanboys and fangirls? Welcome to another edition of Talking Pop with the Fonchai Zambico. It's the podcast and all things pop culture. I'm your host, the Fonchai, and joining me is, of course, my co-host, the mother, from, the brother from the same mother, Biko. What's up, guys? Um, as you know, um, we now it's like last week that we're doing like pretty much you know the last dances out right now. So every week we're just gonna do discussions of the episodes. Um, we did th- one and two last week, and then this past Sunday we saw three and four was was released. And of course, five and six is gonna be released this coming Sunday. So we decided, you know. With a lot of things going on right now with COVID nineteen, you know, we decided, you know what, we're gonna dedicate the next few episodes to discussions of the last dance. We're gonna break down both episodes like we did last week and just pretty much give our opinions. We're gonna pull up some articles related to the documentary series, you know, and pretty much give our opinions what we thought of the episode, what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, and pretty much looking forward to what episodes five and six are gonna be about, like a preview. And like I said, we're gonna pull up articles from ESPN. Dot com and other websites, you know, like I said, they started interviewing like the players involved in the last dance. Now, you know, the reflections looking back on, you know, at that time, because, you know, if you were a Chicago, you were a Bulls fan in the 90s, you know, the Bulls were the top team in Chicago, you know, Bears weren't going anywhere, the Cubs weren't going anywhere, Sox weren't going anywhere. That was the biggest bright spot of Chicago, of course, Michael Jordan being one of the icons of Chicago. You know, he brought, you know, relevancy and, you know, had people's eyes looking at Chicago. And I think it's still that history still resides. I mean, even Jordan still has his headquarters in Chicago. That's how much love he has for the city. Um, so, anywho, before we get started on episodes three and four discussion on on the last dance, we want to say that hey, um, if you like this podcast and you want to make sure to check out the rest of our episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, make sure if you listen on Apple, make sure to rate us five star rating to get more people's attention. Um, and like I said, uh, we want to thank you guys, you know, we've been doing this for so many years and also of course we want to thank our sponsor anchor for sponsoring this podcast. So without further ado, um, let me see if I can pull up from comes to news right now because uh, like, honestly, you know, I usually pull like sources from comic Um, so the g- quickly news right now, um, especially in the wrestling world right now, I guess W, you know, if you remember, they're doing a lot of their contract releases due to, you know, COVID-19. So Pretty much on a budgetary type thing, so a lot of wrestlers' contracts were released, or they can't do anything for ninety days. They're still getting paid, but they can't do anything for ninety days. Of course, Drake Maverick's competing in the the cruiserweight tournament right now at NXT. He only has a couple matches left, and then he's done. I know a lot of wrestlers are going to pro wrestling teaser right now to sell merchandise right now. Another the revival, who I thought was one of the greatest tag teams right now, are going going under the revolt. Is going to be like their their name team right now, and there are some shirts right now on pro wrestling tees right now. And what's cool about pro wrestling tees? Most that money, most of it goes to the, the talent, and then the store actually just gets like a certain percentage of royalty. But most of that money goes toward the wrestlers, so that's kind of cool. That supports them. Um, and of course, uh, Gerald Briscoe was released recently. I just read to this morning that Gerald Briscoe. Who you guys remember were part of the Stooges in the WWE at that time. You know, him, Pat Patterson, you always were the on-screen, like, underlings to the Mr. McMahon character. You know, him and his brother Jack were big um, tag team champions back in the day. Um, they, they ran a promotion in Georgia South Wrestling. Um, and he was, currently, he was working as a backstage agent for the, for the WWE at that time. And I just read today that he was released after so many years being with the company since 1984. Um, Cain Velasquez was also recently released as well. Um, honestly, he only had like he only came out like in October. Kane Velasquez? He was in WWE for a little bit. Why? 
But I think mm-hmm. after walking with injuries and of course, there were, they, I think they didn't have any plans for him. Basically, they didn't mm-hmm. have any storyline plans for him. Okay. You know, we had a little thing with Brock Lesnar, but it's like that was it. And I know he was doing stuff for AAA, Lucha Libre. So, and he's been talking with AEW, so he's good friends with Cody Rhodes. So we'll see if that kind of spurs to bring him on because it'd be kind of cool. He could be a foil to uh, to the Lucha Brothers. To Betacon Jr. and Ray Phoenix, so that'd be kind of cool for follow them and like more luchadors to prove to AEW all the wrestling. Um, and of course, uh, like going through comic.com, there's a lot of things, of course, conventions being canceled. And um, let me see the top articles they got right now, the top trending right now. Let's see here. Um, pretty much, uh, looks like, um, the Walking Dead TV show is getting FCC complaints. <laughs> Apparently, this article is written by Kurt Cameron. Blah, blah, blah. I'm read this. I don't know if you got, you're still following The Walking Dead, Biko. No, I haven't seen it in years. I don't plan on rewatching it. I so, don't know what's done. Apparently, um, FCC complaints filed again. Again, The Walking Dead called it. They hit AMC's obviously as offensive and troubling. The series carries a TVMA rating and warrants a viewer description advised when an episode contained graphic violence. There is none as the show was a subject complaint sent to the FCC when after the episode, which Abraham, played by Michael Kulitz and Glenn CBU, are executed by Negan using a signature barbed wire baseball bat Lucille back in the premiere of the show's seventh season. One complaint called the episode Beyond Brutal. Beyond. Beyond, uh. Sick and beyond evil, most recent complaints that get targeted walking dead is antagonist, the whispers, who use the flesh of the dead as a means of concealing themselves from walkers and our survivors. It's incredibly offensive, disturbing, downright troubling, gruesome in some ways to make the stop reach one complaint. So, I mean, that's why it's on cable people. It's like, come on. That's why it's on paid cable TV. It's not on regular, you know network TV. You can't do stuff on regular network TV because you know, especially on the time slot that it runs on, it's like you can't really do anything about that. I mean, to me, it's like, that's why, shows like The Walking Dead, I think it will, you know, I understand that it has to be on AMC, but it could die, do more if I'm on a streaming service because they can get away with more stuff on I that. mean, I, of course, and, and honestly, the only reason why they're even there still is that because of the, the shows like that one are probably the only thing that's anchor, like, just like how malls have anchor stores, department stores, fucking networks have anchor shows. Uh, like, for instance, AMC, I mean, Walking Dead has been a solid property for them for several years, almost a decade. And then you got um, ones that they hold on to with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. So, like, they still are running high on properties they are still making money. I, I think Halt and Catch Fire is still going on, but... Yeah, they, that's the that's the unnecessary downside to these properties being having to still chalk up to traditional old like traditional critiques or focus focus styles when it comes to presenting stuff like this or or a narrative such as <laughs> they won't say zombies, but in this case, the undead. It's like they're already undead. They're already it's the show started off you know pretty strong. And I think over the years, even if you walk in compared to what now, it's very pacified as much as it could. And they, they, the the reason I stopped watching is because they, they, the narrative style of everything went very much so like to to the point to where this, the walkers weren't deadly anymore. It was the people, which, if you read the graphic novels, that tends to be the case. Mm-hmm. But with the graphic novel, they don't they don't hold that as a sole thing. You still feel like the walkers are still. A, a, 
a legitimate threat all at all times. And the human aspect of them taking advantage of each other's resources and shit is just like a... It should always have been a second coming to where the, the person has to worry about their shit regardless. But, uh... <sighs> unfortunately, a lot of these networks, that's the only thing they can hold on to, so... We're not gonna see Walking Dead go with like I think the only way they're gonna have to change up their game and remain relevant again is if they were to go off of uh, an AMC, but I don't think that's gonna be the case because it makes them too much money and there's still a lot of uh, a lot of people who have not cut the cord yet when it came to, when it comes to cable subscriptions and with with um, Xfinity and AT and T already shifting their shit onto the, on demand to where it's like I don't even understand why why network television is still a thing like you, the on-demand thing just the network should just get patches already like they will eventually do um with their corporation heads and they'll eventually have to get on the streaming services i mean like hbo max is going to be yeah like that month, shit like so people like... will pay for hbo max considering that they're still releasing good ass like content same thing with showtime and stars like people are paying for that i mean stars gets a lot of these feature films pretty early and they still have a lot of good shows like Power that's still going on. And um, and unfortunately, they don't get a lot of the advertising because, I mean, YouTube tends to cater to the bigger platforms like Hulu and, and Netflix because they have the market share. And plus so, with, two, with Hulu having its own TV service as well. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's kind of Disney. Hard. Like, yeah. I don't even like saying Hulu. It's just fuck, uh, Disney. Disney runs it, yeah. It's like, but it's like, yeah, it's like... You know, yeah, we got HBO Max coming out. I mean, the biggest draw of HBO Max and you know, cool. NBC having their Peacock as well yeah. is the fact that they're coming out with original programming. And also, too, but having, like, securing streaming rights to certain programs kind of helps us, like, you know, The Office is going to be leaving Netflix. It's going to go to uh, Peacock. And, you know, like, Friends left Netflix earlier this year. Now it's going to be on HBO, no, Max. HBO Max. Big Bang Theory, which yeah. you cannot find anywhere streaming, is going to be on HBO Max. But there's things like Hulu itself is still going to be there. I mean, there, there's a lot of original programming being announced that being on Hulu and other services. Like, to me, like, Netflix, yeah, you know, Netflix used to be the biggest draw. Because, remember, it was, like, the only, at that time, it was, like, one, only streaming service. But when Netflix surviving more on, relying more on original content and getting certain licenses. But to me, it's, like, the content they're getting is mostly based on their agreements with their partners to develop. You know, Avatar The Last Airbender is being developed as a live-action series. But now with the partnership with, you know, with the showrunners, with the original creators of that program and Nickelodeon, um, with that agreement they signed with Viacom, you know, it's like they get to create new content. And also, too, it was announced yesterday, last week that Avatar Last Year and the complete three seasons are coming to Netflix starting May 15th. So, you know, it's just to take advantage of the fruits of, you know, their partnership. Same thing with... Um, you know, when it comes to anime as well, they're doing a live act like Netflix is doing a live action version of One Piece, and due to their partnership with Toei Animation and of course with the creator of One Piece and Chiro Oda, they're bringing the first arcs of One Piece in May. So you know, Netflix is to you know that people like you know they're trying to get their game in the anime game as well because you got services like High Dive, Funimation, Crunchyroll, Anime Lab. Um, they want to be competing. They want to be, you know, get that foothold in the Eastern market, but at the same time, cater to the people who are big anime fans here in the West. You know, they want to be like the destination anime, which to me, that's, you know, they're moving in the right direction. There's some animes on Netflix that I love that I check out, like High School High Score Girls, a good one too, because it's like, 
If you're into the old video gaming and stuff, definitely check that out. They just released season two. Then Carol Tuesday, if you're into music and you know you're a fan of Cowboy Bebop because the, the director of Cowboy Bebop created Carol Tuesday. The music is phenomenal. The story is great. Definitely watch that as well. And of course, there's um, Violet Evergarden, which takes place like in the post-World War II era. And this girl's like an android. But she's like, she had a job writing letters for people and stuff. And, you know, her, her and she gets free gains from humanity through the people's letters. So that's another, like, anime that you definitely need to check out. And of course, she had, like, like I said, it's like, it's like, yeah, like I said, you know, Netflix, you know, they're losing a lot of licenses. You know, Amazon picks it up. Amazon's getting shows as well, you know, and they're picking up as, like, a lot of programs. Well. I saw that, you know, Amazon's been getting a lot of, like, movie licenses and original programs. I haven't watched Hunters in a while. It's a good show on, on the Amazon Prime as well. Um, but, like I said, it's it's a time that's changing, especially right now with people at home right now. You know, it's something that you guys got to, like, if you want to watch something you haven't watched in a while, you know, check out the streaming services, you know, it's gonna, like, the market's gonna change once, you know. Like, yeah, like, honestly, I hate, I fucking, like, and I hear it a lot in these podcasts I listen to, um, that, like, a lot of people are just, like, I'm bored of all the shit on Netflix, and, like, that's impossible. Netflix has so much shit, albeit mediocre when it comes to some of the original shit, but, like, there's too much to watch. That I like, I end up going back onto YouTube because I just like the variety of the shit I find sometimes on there is a little better than what I watch. Because I mean, uh, I was listening to Bill Burr's shit this morning, his recent episode, and he talks about like how uh, there's where this weird binging culture has just only be like it's become a thing, like it's normalized, and uh, and somebody like one of his people who wrote into his podcast, like he'll get emails and questions. And somebody talked about that and said about the Mandalorian, how like he brought up an interesting point, how um, some people think the whole like withhold it, uh, go from a week to week and release an episode. They thought that would be better. But if anything, they I think what they were expecting from these this type of strategy was that people were going to still analyze, take time to watch each episode. But no, he's like, if anything, it made it worse. Because with the binging culture, people just are so used to watching episode after episode and they don't actually really take in the, the episode. And he's like, I've noticed even within his own friends, and this is the person who wrote to Bill Burr, not Bill Burr himself saying this. He's just kind of reading it. Mm -hmm. And he goes, how like, nobody really takes the time. Um, they won't even discuss it with their friends and stuff. And he's like, he remembers even when growing up when Star Trek was a thing or like Game of Thrones. Like, even then, before that, like, I mean, Game of Thrones came out, what, 2010? So, like, a lot of streaming services are still very, yeah. not niche, per se, but it's, like, not everybody wanted to shell out eight ninety nine for Netflix a month. Because, frankly, not everybody wanted to. Like, it just wasn't, a th it wasn't popular. It just wasn't, like, a thing. It was still very much people were not cutting the cord. But, talks about, like, the downside of binging, how he, like, now, this Bill Burr practices, uh not having to binge a show he's like his trouble he has is starting shows because he's like i'm so used to like i'll start a new show and honestly he's like i do want to withhold myself from binging i'll watch an episode or two because i do want to understand what i just watched mm -hmm. but he's like with the mandalorian it sucks because at the same time he's like yeah i really loved my episode and i got a lot of good feedback from the episode i was in he's like but then people forgot about it and then people still complain of the fact that they finished it within the eight weeks of waiting around or however long it was. I can't remember at this moment. But people tended to... They already forgot what they watched. They're already ready for the second season. And it's like, cool, you soaked it up. And albeit now that 
binging is kind of regular. Like if you don't binge something, people, I don't know, like people look at you weird. Like it's like, it's why like, I want to binge something I so mean, fast? I'm like the same where, you know, um, when it comes to like certain shows, same thing when, when I watch, you know, I'm a big anime guy. Like yesterday, um, I started, I binged like so many episodes of Black Clover. It's like, it's weird because when it comes to me, I'll just watch like two episodes of one anime and go to the next one because I just want to, you know, sometimes... It's like, yeah, I'll have like mini marathons, but sometimes I used to just watch like two episodes back to back and then just go to like the next anime just to just to like broaden my horizon a little bit. But like yesterday, like I, you know, I was like an episode 114 of Black Clover and last night I finished like an episode 120 something. And it's crazy because I never binged an anime that long, but it's like, it depends on the story arc and it, it kind of drew me the same thing, you know, it depends on the arc of the show. That it grabs your attention, like I gotta keep watching because I want to see what happens next. So it, it, you know, the whole binging mentality. Yeah, you know, people are used to just binging everything at once. And there's people that will say, "Oh, I'll watch a couple episodes," or "I'll like me and my buddy are watching the same show. Let's watch at a certain episode. Let's stop at a certain point so that way both are, you know, I can wait for my friends to catch up so we can have discussions and stuff. It, it depends on the person, you know. It depends also on the program itself. Um, it's like thing, you know. It's like I said, it's it's interesting, but. It, it, each person has a different ways when it comes to like streaming and you know mm-hmm. binging and stuff so I mean that's other than that that's all I wanted to say with the news wise but I wanted to point out one thing before we jump on to the the last dance um, discussions um, Funimation decided you know um, the host VR movie nights for your name Akira and more so I guess they're working with uh, big screen VR to create like a virtual reality experience where people like to watch like movies like if you were in the theater mm-hmm. And, like, they'll charge, like, admission just, like, if you're watching, like, a movie on a big screen. And they'll have, like, certain events, like, virtual reality screens. Like, you can watch with your buddies and stuff at the same time. So that's, like, going to the movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's not bad. I mean, that's kind of cool. We're going to be seeing these a lot lately. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, slowly states are slowly opening certain things. But it's, like, they have to, you know, abide by the, pretty much by the social distancing rules and stuff. They still got to follow that as well. So, let's uh, let's get started. Um, oh yeah, hold on. So, um, before we go into it, I pulled up an article for the last dance, kind of summarizing uh, key points, which I think is decent. Uh, yeah, I found some for sources. three and four. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, but I just typed in that, and so I found one that's on U- USA Today under their for the win section, which I'm assuming is their sports because it's USA Today sports. Mm-hmm. And an article. Uh, written by Nate Scott on the 27th, which was yesterday. So pretty fresh, guys. Um, so I just typed in like key points to take away from the last couple episodes, last two episodes of uh, the Last Dance. Um, so like, if you have, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, the episode three is mainly highlighting Dennis Rodman and his perspective of coming onto the Bulls and uh, his relationship with Michael Jordan and the other teammates, and with especially with Phil Jackson, and it kind of gave us a lot of introspective with him and how he kind of felt his role was on the team um, and his relationship, especially with Phil Jackson. It was very interesting to see how they, those two characters, so different with each other, but understood, um, which speaks highly of what Phil Jackson as a coach and just as a person who used his intellect to kind of understand players, which I think a lot of coaches, I'm not going to speak for all of them, but I think it's very important when you play organized sports is your coach because you essentially are having to learn how to get a bunch of adult males 
to get work together and they're all getting paid X amount of money, mm-hmm. uh, which like they're there to do a job at the same time. You have to kind of understand how each of their minds set works and their ethics when it comes to working as a team. So with this particular episode is with mainly focused on Dennis Rod. Yeah. I just pull up an article from ESPN. Um, mm-hmm. this is, um, different key takeaways from episode three and four. And what I like about this, it gives like every person contributes. So it's like a multi, Key point collaboration, so it's like it's not written by one person, but it's written by the writers. So it's like they're giving their each opinion and their takeaways from each one. So I mean, we could pull off of that as well. But like I said, episode three was more like on Dennis. It was like a background Dennis Rodman, you know, him growing up in Oklahoma, where he came from, and you know, of course, you know, he ended up getting that drafted by Detroit, and you know, became part of the Bad Boys. Um, conglomerate with Lola, Jude Dumars, Bill Lambeer, Isaiah Thomas, McGuire, um, John Sally, that mentality and how he, his personality changed to the point where, you know, after what they won the 1990 championship with Detroit, he ended up, ended up a couple of years after that, like in 93, he was in a parking lot with a gun. I don't honestly don't know how, how, how personality. I, I just think that like, he well, just didn't want to do that anymore. It, it could be, like, pressure, right? but this is what, um, I'm going to read, like, each person's opinion, but this one's on, um, Dennis Rodman. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this is by Jackie McMullen. Um, I'm assuming she wrote that people don't realize Dennis Rodman is an introvert. As a rookie, yeah. he wore jeans and sneakers, no tattoos, no piercings. He was bullied as a kid. His father was a wall, and his mother kicked him out of the house. So he slept in his friend's backyard in a chase lounge. All he wanted was to be loved. So Pistons head coach Chuck Daly put his arm around and kept him there until Daly left Detroit in 92. Ron went off the trails without him until Phil Jackson looped his arm around and told him he knew what it was like to be different and transform him into the Bulls' X Factor. So what do you think of that? What do you think of that opinion about um, what this person Sounds about right. Um, and I think people tend to... Um, I think they tend to forget that, that introverts, although it could be a personality trait... Mm-hmm. Um, nature can play a big part with that in the sense that uh, he f- came from a, uh, an environment where he wasn't necessarily wanted and so that could have shaped the way people may have perceived him and so if he felt that nobody wanted him he had to just close inside himself but he not that he was looking for uh, like love and stuff I think he was just looking for a place to belong and I, and uh, I think what, he had that in Detroit because with Chuck Daly, Daly yeah, once think, he got fired or let go um, yeah. I mean they let him they let him go because the Bulls beat him it was after 91 yeah and, and honestly I mean I'm not surprised it's not like the Bulls didn't do that with, with Phil so like and that's after 6 so it, it's 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 the NBA, and it's not any different than it is now. Um, I, and I was even listening to another thing, um, another podcast, and they talk about how, like, the Heat had fucking... I remember when they had when Shaq went, went the run with the Heat, and uh, they had Stan Van Gundy, and in the middle of the season, Shaq was like, I don't like Stan Van Gundy. And what happens? Fucking the president of operations, Pat, Pat Riley, they bring... He goes, I want Pat Riley there to coach. Like, that's... So, I think they underestimate how much uh, players... Players have a lot of pull with that. And I think this documentary is doing a good job of showing how important that was, especially with the figure like Michael that had so much, like he had a lot more power than um, people wanted him to have in the sense that like it was, oh, if Phil goes, I'm gone. So he was able to wave that around the Bulls, but the Bulls didn't want to play that shit either, but they knew it. It's like, oh, well, if he's going to do that, let's, 
let's still build because we have this guy and we have this new guy that we took a chance with as an assistant now main. So with Dennis Rodman's case, this is a guy after, like he had the same situation that he had like, that Michael had. Chuck Daly had like Chuck Daly was Rodman like when Rodman was in Detroit. Chuck Daly was his anchor. He was the one that was yeah. able to keep him down to earth. But I think you know as soon as Chuck Daly was low, he left Detroit ninety two. I think that's when Dennis you know. I don't know if it was, like, his personality changed or he didn't have that rock like Chuck Daly to be there to help him out or get through, like, tough times. As you can see, based on his childhood, you know, this like, they, like Dennis talks about that, like, how he was bullied and, you know, his dad wasn't around. So he didn't have that, that father figure role model that he had growing up. So I think that kind of, like, his personality so kind of changed that luckily he was able to go to school, go to college, play South, you know, Oklahoma State. A college in Oklahoma. He came from Oklahoma and was able to get drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 19... Was it 86, 87? I think he got drafted. So, but it's like... That, and of course, you know, later on, he, he decided he has that camaraderie with Phil Jackson, but Phil was able to get through to him. And then Phil was able to go and have a meeting with Dennis Rodman when Robin, you know... Because the Bulls were looking at to get like an enforcer, like a rebounder and stuff. Somebody that's, that's to me like Dennis as a player was great. You know, he knew how to defend certain players, what the, what they look for, like traits and stuff. And it comes to rebounding, creating opportunities for scores. But at the same time, having that defensive mentality, able to pinpoint, you know, where the scorer was going to go while guarding a certain player. And that's what I like about that. Dennis as a tactician. People don't credit him with that being a tactician. They always see him as because of his personality outside the court. Was kind of like you know that was his reputation, but honestly, based on you know the highlights and stuff that are showing on that episode three on Dennis, he was a you know he was a beast. You know he like I said he read the offense of other opposing teams and you know how to get in their face and how to keep them from like so any good. scoring chances. He he and what I love him about him as a player too um, is that he recognized his strengths right away coming in. I mean, you were talking about, like, what I find even more interesting is the fact that Robin didn't go into the league until he's 25. And then, which is unheard of, and he came from a division, like, three or two school, and from a, a, not a community college, but, like, a pretty small school. And he went and averaged, like, crazy rebound numbers. He was a decent scorer, but his rebounding and defensive capabilities was already a thing. And he recognized that. So when he came into the league at that age... People were so surprised at like his his timing because he was undersized as a forward. He was only he's only six six. He's the same height as Michael. Mm-hmm. So it's like he was playing the four position, which the four position you don't have to be extremely tall, but you like power is is the front of it for a reason, and mm-hmm. so, and that's what he had. So I think what Robin had best too was the fact that his timing he perfected it. He he recognized that it, it didn't take. It doesn't like matter what your size is. It's all about the timing and understanding, uh, understanding how each player is. So like, and and one of the takeaways in the documentary, as I see in this article, is that they talk about that and um, how Jordan, Jordan connected with Robin a deeper level, not only because like he because of the type of player he was, but understanding him on a psychological level of. Oh, this guy, this guy brings it as all, 24, all the time, every time he's on the court. And that's what Michael did. It could be to practice, it could be just a scrimmage. He would always give it his, like, A-plus all the time, never turn it off. And Robin did the same thing. Hence why, like, they needed, he always needed to find the escape, which a lot of introverts do. 
is that we we can do so much socially, but that that's fucking overwhelming and draining to the point that you, it gets it gets into be an environment not only outside but mentally to where you don't like you feel caged up. So for him, he needed that release and. And Michael and Phil Jackson understood that. The rest of the team will have their own perceptions and because then, they're all there to do a job. It seemed like, you know, when Pippen, you know, in the 97-98 season when he, you know, he was, you know, supposedly sitting out with the injury, you saw that, like, Jordan kind of, like, like Michael, he counted on Dennis. Yeah, he it. needed somebody to count on because that's what Michael fucking hated. Like, not that he fucking hated it, but he told himself that, no, that he's by himself on this team and... And so Phil came in and was like, you know, you have other people on your team that like can make that. Yeah, shot. I know. I'm so far kind of exploring yeah. the whole thing. So we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll bring it up we'll, today. We'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, episode three, um, the way you had mentioned, because Pippen got injured, what the first two, three months they had to play without a Pippen. So it was kind of like going was, back to the 80s again. But like, I think Dennis was there. But so. having Dennis there too was like, and like, what I like about Dennis, like he always, he has high respect for Michael. Like, based on the interviews, like, the episode three, he has high respect for Michael because he respects Michael as a competitor and as a person because he knows Michael had that winning mentality. And he, like, Dennis had the same thing, too. Like, winning a championship was one of the things that... Well, because he knew what Dennis... I mean, playing against them for three years and, and knowing, like, oh, no, this guy can fucking... This guy can... Like, this he guy beat my that, ass yeah. against the Pistons, like, three times. And so what Jordan had to go through just to... So he knew what he was capable... Or, like, he knew what he could do on the court and knowing that, like, oh, no, this guy... This guy fucking... This guy, he knows what he can do and he puts it out there. And that's all Jordan wanted. He didn't give a fuck what you did the night before. When you're on the court, he wanted you to give your heart. He didn't care. So, like I said, these takeaways, um, they're all in episode three, so they're all Dennis Rodman ones. So, I will say this first part of pod, uh, this first half of the podcast will be on episode three, and then, of course, um, I'll get to the takeaways for episode four. Yeah. But I got like for the fact they broke down pretty much on Dennis. So, this is from Eric Woodyard. So, these are all NBA experts from ESPN. This is what he quotes. As a Michigan native, I can express enough just how below the bad boy Pistons are in the state, even to this day. It wasn't until I moved out of Michigan that I realized the rest of the NBA community, especially in different markets. Didn't feel the same as we do about these guys. I did respect the way Isaiah Thomas' company were portrayed in this film because it could have gone in a different direction knowing that the bad blood between the Bulls and the Pistons during that era. This also introduces Dennis Rodman to the younger generation. His Pistons career doesn't get acknowledged as much as it should, and in my opinion. He was a beast. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about right now. He it's like he doesn't get enough. They, for he's people just remember because of his, you know, his hair color, his, you know, things he did outside the court. But people don't like that. What I like about this episode too kind of shows. I like for the fact that yeah, I was aware of Dennis Rodman, you know, in the nineties, you know, not just because of the color hair. My dad, you know, like I said, we talked to our dad, like he remembers watching the NBA, and you know, at that time, he remembers about the bad boys because he's like, oh yeah, the bad boys. I'm like every time we talk about the trade, he's like, oh yeah, the bad boys. Talk about Robin. It's like, and that, what I like about the episode three was it showed you know why Robin is held in the highest regard. You know why he was that big piece of the late you know the Bulls' last three championships at that time. Why you know the Bulls won him. Why Jordan won him. Why Phil should have got him. So it's like, and then you show his early clips with the Pistons. Like he was a beast. You know, rebounding. You know, defending, creating opportunities for scoring. And like he was, you know, like I said, he was a beast. 
Um, this is another opinion from Andrew L Lopez. I think I'm Robin. Um, through the hair color piercings and just over-centric nature, it's easy to forget how much Robin thoroughly cared about basketball itself and becoming the best rebounder of his era. And one of the best of all time, the clip from early in episode 3 where Robin talks about rebounding was dying to me. He knew how Jordan's shots would come off, and the same with Larry and Barry and Magic Johnson. That's why he was able to average the rebounding numbers he did. Jordan called him one of the smartest teammates he's ever had on the defensive yeah. end. They've been mentioning how much... How much film Robin study? His rebounding doesn't have. I see. That's one thing too. He knew the way the person like by studying tape and you know seeing based on how the person is shooting, he can pinpoint where's like that ball is gonna bounce off the rim, basically. Oh yeah, and like that's that's just, and I think it just comes with reaction time and anything. If you're saying basketball is a very muscle memory type of impulsive game, so with him and. And him perfecting his job. And I, I, like, I kid you not, like, I can't emphasize this enough. Him recognizing, and I don't know if it's because he was 25 and he was able to recognize that playing college ball, but like, knowing that he can come to the league and know it's like, all right, I'm going to be a defensive machine and then be a rebounding guy. That's what I'm good at. Like, scoring never became something, like, people never lauded him for scoring because he didn't have crazy numbers. But like, to average. Especially in San Antonio, his spurred days, the average, like, 20 rebounds a game and coming off the bench. Like, coming off the bench. He wasn't even fucking a starter, and he was rebound double-digit numbers each game. I mean, David Robson didn't like him because of the tactics, he, or just the way he, he looked and stuff. But we're talking about a Navy guy, pretty straight-laced conservative guy coming in. So, like... Because, you know, Detroit you didn't want anything to do with him. They ended up training him off to San Antonio, yeah. And that's what's awful, because, like, you can't shave them enough that, like, he... He still had a good career in the Spurs, and then the Spurs let him go because he they didn't want him to be himself. And Phil fucking said, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> whatever, dude, I don't care what you do, but in the court, we're doing this. We're, we're doing and Phil was job, able to get through to him, that's what it was. Which to... I think is very rare to find, and um, I think is a special thing you can find in athletics that you don't see in... in an or Like, I guess working in a corporate environment and shit, like... People can be as catered to the project as they want, but if there's no passion, there's no passion. But in athletics, it's like people can do these things with their bodies, and that's all they know, and that's all they want to know, because that's all they want to focus on, and, and we see that. And I think that's something in sports that we don't get oh, working like, regular fucking jobs. Yeah. And this is a good comment. This Bobby Marks wrote... Um, Bobby Marks. Says watching Dennis Rodman brought back flashbacks to his old friend of mine, Jack Haley. He was a well known through that Haley was signed before the 95-96 season to act as babysitter for Robin. Both played together in San Antonio in 93-94 and 94-95 and developed a strong relationship. I got to know Haley through the 96-97-97-98 uh, season when I worked for the Nets. During those two seasons, Haley signed seven contracts, including four 10-day contracts and played a total of 36 games. The last contract was 10 days before the Nets played the Bulls in 98 playoffs. Haley would eventually transition to be part of the coaching staff for the 98-99 season. I was curious about his relationship with Robin. They would often ask him about Haley. He hated the word babysitter and wanted to be known that he was a mentor and confidant to Robin. At the time, I was naive and didn't understand how someone who played one game, game 82, could have had an impact. Haley gave me an instruct lesson in the 95-96 Bulls season and took me back to the 96 Finals. It was the one that I would never forget. When Haley died in 2015, Samson wrote about the critical role Haley played before Game 6 and NBA Finals. After the Bulls dropped two games in Seattle, Robin decided that he wanted to play anymore. It was Haley who talked Robin into playing Game 6. Robin would go on to grab 19 rebounds and score 9 points. The Bulls would go on to win that series that night. Mm -hmm. It kind of shows how, you know, Robin, you know, 
to me, it's like people like he wasn't alone. Yeah, it showed like I know the film like it, episode show how he got to know Madonna and all that stuff. It's like, yeah. but Madonna was the one who told him like, don't be you know, be yourself. Don't let other people try to change you or try to dictate how you are. Just express yourself, and I think she kind of like became an influence on him, and that's why he decided you know. Show his personality. Oh yeah, fucking Madonna. Yeah, yeah. That she was. I mean, fuck, who better, who better to learn uh, that shit from than from Madonna, the person who that was like her fucking shtick. Um, but I think that's pretty cool how they like. They, they show his. Or they they at least emphasize a lot on like what makes him him on the outside of the court because I think that's what fucked up a lot of his perception from. Sports fans, and I think he's like, what is this clown doing? Our dad says that shit, which I don't know if it's because it's mildly racism comes in, but who knows? Um, but it's just, I when I hear the clown thing, I think it's just people who don't understand, and that's the problem is that he all he wanted was to just let the, him be himself, and then understanding. Like I don't even think he was looking for understanding. I just think that he wanted people to just let him be. Um. And uh, fuck, and I listened to the Flagrant 2 podcast, and Andrew Schultz says it, he, he says it so, he puts it very nicely, I'm gonna butcher, I'm just gonna paraphrase it, but he says that, like, that he, his, his, uh, he set up a life for himself to where his escape was being himself, and the basketball was just this job for him. Mm-hmm. Like, you can see that for him, the bas- basketball was not his passion, it was something a means to an end but his real passion was just being himself mm-hmm. like this guy got on a motorcycle after that game drunk up the miller light didn't even have a helmet no visor and he's just riding off on a motorcycle that's fucking badass and then, like, I, I like to see that and then but, what's kind of funny is that story about you know he wanted a vacation yeah like he didn't he wanted like and they days. said yeah because then i think phil michael said you know what if you want a vacation go for two days and Jordan's like, he jokes about it because I never asked for a vacation because he was, Jordan was like... Well, I was working every day. I should have gotten a vacation. Yeah. But, but, you know, Phil being, you know, able to give him that and then, of course, the story about Carmen Electra makes her appearance in the episode yeah. and she talks about how one day Jordan wanted to go grab Dennis. I think he had to be in Chicago or something because he didn't say he had to fly to Vegas to get him. It was like a hotel. Oh, no, I'm sure he flew back. He flew back, but he, he just stayed at a hotel. Yeah. And I guess uh, the funny story, she said that, you know, she ended up hiding behind the couch on the covers. Michael <laughs> was looking for Dennis and he up holding the practice. And, of course, it, I like about the whole Jordan talk about the practice when trying to get Dennis back into shape. And you saw that, you know, the, the Indian exercise, the Indian trail exercise they did with Dennis and stuff just to get him, like, going and motivate him. And this one, too, um, Kevin Pelton brings up a point here. Um, uh, it says when Dennis might be had been more difficult to manage after Scotty's return in 1998. January, the numbers didn't bear out that his play declined. So, if you want to, I'll be right back, guys. Um, I got order food, so Biko, if you want to read this comment from ESPN. Oh, so from Kevin Felton, while he might have been more difficult to manage after Scotty Finn's return in January, the numbers don't bear out that his play declined, which Jordan says uh, on the practice session he had after he comes back from his weekend, vacation weekend, uh, Robin's vacation weekend. Michael says it because Phil Jackson gives him shit that it's like, Rob, when you come here, you gotta, you know, you gotta actually be here and stuff. And it's like, Phil, just be lucky his body's here. He, his head might not be here, but his body is. He's here. He's ready to go. So, 
From this comment, it goes that his play didn't decline. Rodman's game score actually improved slightly from an eight to eight point one through Pippen's absence to eight point six thereafter. So I'm assuming that's uh, eight points shooting with a 46 to 45, 40.5% ratio, but he helped offset that with an improved free throw percentage. After shooting just 41% from the line in the season's first 35 games, he shot 74% for the rest of the way, which is an incredible increase, given that Rodman wasn't known as a, a scorer, or let alone have a decent shot. Uh, but to go from 41% to 74%, that's ridiculous. I think so. I mean, he ma- that was his that was would have been his career high if he maintained it for a full season. I think too. Uh, they kind of talked about that when Pepe came back from you know from his injury. They came back in January. I think Rodman didn't want to be the third wheel. I think that's what it was because he had this camaraderie with Michael during when Michael needed somebody. He needed Dennis, and then you saw when they're on, they showed that one clip when they're on the bench. You know, him and Jordan were discussing strategy. How to guard this guy? How to get this guy? You know, Jordan was like dictating. You know, you got to get him and stuff. I think when Pippen came back and Jordan had his, you know, his, his Robin to his Batman, Dennis didn't want to be like the third wheel. I think that kind of like, you know, I think he got a little jealous. I don't know if he got jealous of Scotty, but I think he felt that no, oh, Jordan got Pippen back. You know, Jordan, he just not gonna, Michael's not gonna need me as much. I think you know that kind of gives it a point that you know. Yeah, his his thing kind of um, that uh, he got approved. I think that kind of gave Dennis like more motivation. Because yeah, Pippen's back, but you know, let me show Michael I'm still worth it. You know, I'm still like his buddy too in case he needs me. Yeah, and that's why his like his pers- he went back up a little bit. <laughs> I just like it's it, it it's like like his play kind of like it fluctuated like because yeah. I remember some games during that time where he ended up scoring three pointers and he wasn't an outside shooter and that was he he was surprised himself that he made it in and it's it's kind of funny it's like yeah I, mean, yeah, I remember that shit uh, it's just like and, and and what I find hilarious is that some people find this like it's just like this new revelation that there's professional basketball players that don't have the best shot, which in NBA, it's kind of like inevitable that you should at least have a decent jump shot. Mm -hmm. But have you noted, like, have you not been around? We're talking about, like, if we're going to go that route, we're we're going to might as well, like, throw Shaq under the bus for not having a free, having a terrible free throw shot, barely shoot, or Joakim Noah, who was a defensive player of the year, by the way, um, and had a good career with us. So it's like, you don't, and I think that that's what sucks, that people tend to forget um, in organizations or let alone anything that has an organized like team in place. Especially when it comes to sports, if you are good at the one thing that keeps you on the team and that's what you're good at, fucking be good at it. Mm-hmm. That's just like any job you work in corporate. Like, you don't, you're not doing a million things at once. Like, a manager doesn't even do that. A manager just makes sure that everyone's working great together and there's a solid flow going. But does the manager know what you're doing? No, they just have a good idea of it. So same thing with, with we'll say, with the NBA. Was Robin the best jump shooter? Fuck no. But was he that best rebounder on the court that you know? Defender? Once that ball, if that ball bounces off the back or that rim, or if I need somebody to guard Magic Johnson or I need somebody to pick up this guy, Robin's going to go and fucking do it. It didn't even matter if the guy was 7'2". It wouldn't even matter. He would jump in and fucking do it. And we're talking like the mid-90s. We had like some tall motherfuckers coming in. Nowitzki came in 96, Tim Duncan, like we had some seven footers coming in and Robin played the four. 
So those guys were playing in the, in the league, let alone rookies, but they were starting on their teams. And the whiskey started for the Mavericks. And they Kobe as well. I mean, Kobe was playing. Um, Allen Iverson. Yeah, and I mean, those were guards, but they're not the same position. But nonetheless, like you still had... He, I mean, Rodman could still play the three, and they would still have him on defenders. So, like, you knew what you would get out of Rodman. I think this episode did a good job of showing that, like, he wasn't no, he wasn't a slouch either. I think people just, like you mentioned, they they only care about like how he look, how he perceived himself, or how people perceived him on the off the court. And and then hopefully, I'm hoping this documentary really gives him more clout for this. That like he was an excellent fucking piece of this organization. Like, it wasn't just Michael, and I think this this documentary could have come at a better time for people to look for some sort of hope in these times, and I think we're kind of far enough to where those the 90s has been something that you can look with the rose-tint glasses, because it, it was a special time, Yeah. Um, and especially with Chicago sports. Uh, but Robin, fucking, I, I, I loved Robin, and I still do. Well, you consider him an icon? Uh, up there when it comes to Chicago sports yes, history. Yes. Oh yes. I haven't. Um. We've had plenty of de- good rebounders, plenty of good big men that played in our in our organization over the years. That I've been following the Bulls, and uh, he has to be. He has to be. Like, if he's not on there, I'd be fucking surprised. I'd be very. I'd be like, why not? You're. It's like you throw off of. Uh, it's like. It's like not counting D Rose. Or yeah, I still respect. Like, yeah, I'd be so surprised if they like he he has to be like a hall of fame. Yeah, he has team. to be in the hall. Yeah, like the, I mean, he had such an obscure number ninety one. <laughs> like if that if that doesn't show you how obscure it is, like that. Like, and he that? was an MVP. He was the yeah. first Bulls MVP since Michael Jordan. Jordan yeah. was the last Bulls MVP for what defense? No, he was NBA MVP for scoring. He was an MVP. Rodman? No, not Rodman. No. Derrick Rose. Oh, no, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But Robin, so, yeah, you cannot find on a rebound like Dennis Robin. When it came to creating, like, opportunities, scoring opportunities, and rebounds, I, you can't mention rebounds without that. It's, it's, it's hard, hard it's to mention like, a rebounder without the name player. Dennis Robin in there. It's, yeah, to me, I consider him one of the icons of Chicago sports. I, I put him up there in the same pedestal as Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. So, you know, I put him up there because, honestly, if, if it weren't for Michael... And Phil deciding, you know what, we should bring this guy in. Yeah, I don't think the Bulls would have like had that. They they, they would have had a missing piece going to those three championships. And it'd be very sad because it's obviously it's not the same, but it's something that like they they'd be a whole different team. They wouldn't have the same. Res- I don't know if they would have the same results. All right, here's one last comment regarding Rodman for the third episode for episode three. <laughs> before we jump into episode four, um, it's from Mike Schmidt. Schmitz. Wow, look at that. Although it's easier now than ever to discover prospects from all different levels, given the extensive film and statistical services available, and base scouts would have poked all kinds of holes in Dennis Robbins' resume if he was coming up today. Drafting a 25-year-old from an NAIA program is as unprecedented as it gets. In fact, since 2000, only two players have been 25 older on the draft night, Bernard James and Mamadou Nidaye. If he was coming up today, Robin might have had to work his way up through the G League to prove his production on the NAIA level wasn't yeah. a product of the level. As it turns out, Robin was without question a true diamond of rough and exception to most of the scouting guidelines the NBA front office is often subscribed to. Yeah, I mentioned it's it's unheard of. Like when you look twenty five, 
playing for a division two three school or whatever and like coming and going getting like, drafted at twenty five years old it's like yeah like president and there's only a handful of NBA players who have that like there's a couple I mean if we're not gonna throw in the high but school remember, ones but we're like yeah. the ones who come from division three schools who actually make a, a good name for themselves or who go undrafted obviously like that's just like a weird stigma that gets thrown on players because of like. The thing, the, the thing I hate most is the whole throwing the rookie thing in front of athletes. Like they haven't played this, haven't been playing the same fucking game for years. Yeah. Like these sports don't change, so it's very, it's very hilarious to me how they, they throw a rookie title on a player and they think that they're not, they're not capable mm. of performing. But then we, they fail to remember that you're talking about. A professional athlete performing against other professionals in the industry that they're in, which is basketball. Yeah. It's just like any other job when you go in. It's like, there's always going to be somebody better than you, but not everyone can do it like you. Mm-hmm. So, you just, you don't, just, that's what competitiveness comes out. And that's where, like, that's what Michael wanted the most. He wanted everybody to fucking die on that damn court like him. And, and he knew it that nobody else could do it like him. So he's like, how do I get these other fuckers to, to understand that I want this just as bad? And Robin, Robin understood it because he was winning championships. So, like, Robin knew how to win. I mean, albeit the bad boys had their way of doing it, but they're winning. Fuck it, they're winning. So it's just like how do, the Bulls made it with players who fucking knew how to win and to do your job. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. Um, Make sure to listen to our dynamic ad, and we'll come back. Um, We're going to discuss episode four of The Last Dance, so don't go away. Hey, it's the franchise from Talking Pop with the franchise and Biko. Just let you know, we have a storefront. It's teespring.com slash Talking Pop. We got shirts. We got tank tops for men, women, kids. We also got hoodies and sweatshirts. Um, we actually have coffee mugs, and we have an iPhone case and a Samsung case with the Pops or Not logo on there. Also, we have stickers, so you can put on your locker, on your laptop, whatever you want to put those stickers on there. So right now, if you go to teespring.com slash TalkingPop, and when you go to check out, use the promo code TalkPop and save $5 on your order. Support the podcast. As always, geek on and take care. Alrighty, and we're back. Hope you enjoyed the ad. Um, now we're going to talk about episode four of The Last Dance. And this one kind of followed more on Phil Jackson's background. And also, too, it talks about also the Bulls' um, extreme hurdle in the playoffs was the Detroit Pistons. And it talks about, you know, Doug Collins as well. And, you know, and finally, it also, too, discusses, you know, Phil's coaching philosophy, his background, and also, too, um, how the Bulls were able to go over the Detroit Pistons finally. So here's one um, comment on, you know, this is from Tim uh, Boteps. Um, He wrote, consider this, Michael Jordan is the best player on the planet. He loves Doug Collins, his head coach. The Bulls just went out to the Eastern Conference Finals and gave the heavily favored Detroit Pistons a surprisingly hard time in the series. And what scenario is that coach fired? This is how exactly Phil became the coach of the Bulls. As Jordan himself said in the docuseries, he wasn't a fan of Jackson at first. It's hard to think of many other scenarios where a player of a Jordan's caliber was a big fan of a coach and they were dismissed. There's a common theme throughout Chicago's run, where it was training Charles Oakley, Jordan's close friend, or Fine Collins, a coach he liked and respected. The Bulls, specifically general manager Jerry Krause, didn't always do what Jordan wanted. And at the end, it worked out quite well for all of them. So, you know, stand on about guy let go. 
they brought in Doug Collins. And, you know, Doug Collins decided, you know what, um, he saw how great Michael is, and he decided to build a whole offensive scheme around MJ. Basically, like, you saw that one post-game interview when, like, Doug Collins says, you know, get Michael the ball and get the hell out of his way. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, yeah. And he, look, get me wrong, Doug Collins was an okay coach. I would not discredit him. Yeah, I mean, he still took him to, he, like, he was leading him to the playoffs, though. I mean, Doug, and then he was not a slouch of a player in his own right. Like, they, I mean, Jerry Krause had nothing against Doug. And obviously, Jordan loved the shit out of him. He called him Dougie. <laughs> like, you don't, you don't just make nicknames for your fucking, who is supposed to be your manager, right, essentially. But Doug Collins, like, he, he wasn't a slouch for the Bulls. I mean, and then Jerry Krause coming in at that time where, like, he came through the Chicago system with the White Sox. So he kind of understood that what Ryan Swift was looking for. So it's it just... And then they decided, you know, we needed a coach who wanted to win, and they went out Phil Jackson. What I like about Phil Jackson, they show his background, where he came from. He was from North Dakota. Which, no slouch in his own right, too. He no grew up in a family. Like, he respected the American culture and stuff. And, you know, he, even though his parents were, like, ministers. And very, religious. you know, He was so boy. different. Like, he was a different thinker, like, besides yeah, parents. Just, what, that, and I think that's what helped him connect with Rodman is that Phil I mean fuck I just sw- I mean I swear by acid but like acid just opens up your whole perspective <laughs> oh yeah they did talk about that, that like you part. can believe what you want about drugs but like I think the you should try it before you're scared by whatever the media tells you um acid in particular will definitely if you have a good trip your inhibitions will change but nonetheless in this particular case uh Phil Jackson was always an open-minded person uh and no slouch in his own right. He won the championships with the Knicks. Uh, won his own coaching with uh, the CBA team. The Albany, uh, what was it? Like, fucking weird-ass name. I forget the name of it. But uh, he won a championship with the CBA. So like, and he was and a then he that weird team in Puerto Rico where the one guy had, had got suspended from the, the fucking home games because he shot the official for calling something. By any means, I don't know how they run the Puerto Rican Basketball League, but nonetheless... Phil Jackson knew how to fucking win. So, yes, it looks weird that an assistant coach got the call-up to coach the Bulls from Doug Collins. However, and obviously Jordan didn't like him at first because he had such a strong relationship with Collins going through the trenches. And then the now Phil started to develop this thing with Tex Wither, yeah. who is one of the architects of the triangle offense. Like, little pieces were setting up. It's just that, obviously, like, hindsight looking in, it's like you see you see what it culminates to, but... Obviously, during those times in the present, you don't see that happening, how forming it was to where you already had Tex Winter, arguably one of the best offensive minds of the game, working with Phil Jackson, who was a sponge, who was open to any sort of strategy on how to progress in the game. And he's given this fucking hot shot of a player like Michael Jordan that's been constantly going against the Pistons in the playoffs and constantly getting beat up and constantly losing. And all he wants to do is win. And the funny thing is, it did mention a story where, you know, Phil was, they were trying to get Phil earlier on as assistant. But, oh, yeah, of course, right. the, but right. the problem was, of course, at that time, was, you know, Stan Alpac was like a conservative. And, you know, it's just, the, you know, how Phil dressed. He didn't dress like, Phil didn't dress like yeah, in suits great. and stuff. He wore like jeans and a regular shirt. And it's kind of funny because it's like, like... He was uh, an adolescent of the 60s. But it's funny how, you know, here's one comment from Ramona Shelburne. She said about Jerry Cross as a course right now. This whole documentary is being, you know, looked at as the villain. But people don't realize he was... He knew how to scout talent, yes. potential. 
people. And here's one thing she said, you know... R.I.P. Jerry Cross. Like, Jerry Cross was cast as a villain who broke up the Fool's Dynasty because everyone else was getting the credit. But episodes three and four also remind us what a great scout he was. Particularly when he came to identify Phil Jackson as a coaching talent. And when you know it, like many of the protagonists in the story, Cross learned basketball from Tex Winter. He went to Kansas State and sat in endless sessions with Winter learning the game. Um, not many people know this story, but when Doug Collins got into an argument and banished Winter from the Bulls bench, it hastened Jackson's ascension because of Cross's loyalty to Winter. Anyway, Cross and Jackson fell out at the end of the Bulls run. They were united in their admiration of Tex Winter, whom they each advocated to be enshrined in the Hall of Fame. And yeah, we didn't talk about that story. Well, Tex Winter was assistant Doug Collins. You know, Tex Winter was trying to urge Doug Collins, hey, let's use this triangle offense. But of course, Doug Collins at that time was more catering to Michael. Michael made sure he had the ball in hands and he was scoring. But, you know, Tex Winter and Phil knowing that, hey, you know, Jordan doesn't have to be the only scorer. There's other potential people on the team that can score just as well as MJ. Who could provide? Who could support? And you know, when it shows that point when Doug Collins banished, you know, Phil uh, went Tex Winter from the bench. Phil was able to study with Tex and pretty much get a lot of his insight and stuff. And able to, you know, eventually, in the course of eventually, he ended up usurping Doug Collins as the coach, and Tex Winter stayed on with Phil. And think about it, even that relationship kept going on. Even when Phil went to LA to coach, he brought Tex Winter with him. If you remember seeing the LA's championship runs at that time in the two thousands. Tex Winter was on the bench with Phil because Phil respected Tex Winter and his whole offensive scheme, which kind of like, you know, brought up, you know, honestly, yeah, he deserved, like, Tex Winter deserved to be enshrined in the Hall of Fame because he brought that whole triangle offense, which a lot of teams like to use to this day. But yeah, like, Phil, you know, he wasn't like the conventional coach. He, you know, he wrote books and, you know, talk about that time when he took acid in, in California, but. It took a while for MJ to open up to Phil. Hmm. After, you know, Doug Collins, you know, was let go. But, um, like I said, it's like, you know, another thing too, and it kind of brings up the point where the Detroit Pistons. Because that's one thing of this episode, not just on Phil, but also talks about, you know, the Bulls' struggle, struggles against the Detroit Pistons, like in 88, 89, and 90. They, like, every time they end up going to playoffs, they can get to Detroit. That was one of the biggest obstacles. Um, and it says here, here's what Eric were, you know, it's like, it was, it was, to me, it was like the perfect villain. Because you had the Detroit Pistons were like the villain. You had the Bulls, the underdogs. And this is what uh, Eric Worre said. Without the Detroit Pistons, we might not have witnessed the evolution of Michael Jordan and the Bulls becoming the champions they would eventually become. The relentless drive to be the best was put this way to Jordan's passion to add weight training to his regimen yeah, while pushing his teammates to get better for Detroit. I wasn't necessarily surprised by his reaction to Isaiah Thomas' comments about leaving the floor without shaking his hand. MJ has the right to feel that way. Guys were so competitive back when that you could still see the disappointment in Jordan's teammates eat today from that gesture. Basketball was always was very different then, but even being a fan of the bad boys, they should have shaken hands with the Bulls. Oh, God, this has been such a fucking <laughs> argument of contention considering this three years, but it was all oh, That part was the best. Let's fucking talk about that. Because uh, it's honestly... I, I've heard it off of three podcasts already and stupid because ESPN has nothing else to do so they're just writing stupid articles on like beef from a man who still hasn't matured over his fucking ego but it's Isaiah Thomas it's his personal life whatever the reasoning he uses which is hilarious considering the fact that they're releasing this to millions of people and he after all this time it was nice to see Michael's reaction to what Isaiah had to fucking say from the little clip they got from the interview and it's so funny to see that, like, 
it makes a lot of sense, uh, albeit I'm going to tie it together to the Dream Team thing, but it's how hilarious, um, and Bill Burr says it, how Isaiah Thompson, instead of just being like, you know what, it was wrong of us to not show some sportsmanship and to actually shake their hand. Yeah, no, he throws the Boston Celtics under the bus. And saying that, well, the Celtics didn't shake our fucking hands when we beat them um, the, the, on, their, on their streak dynasty going in the 80s. And it's like, that's nice, but it's basically saying how it's like, oh, well, it's, oh, well, he started it. And so I'm going to, it's like, oh, and, and the fact that they, the documentary still showed that you, you lied. You still walked up to the court, the middle of the half court of the Celtics and fucking shake and try and, and if, Essentially, like Kevin McHale's hand begged like. Kevin McHale to shake your hand, and Kevin McHale of the whole Celtic squad was the only one who did that, and it's only because you caught him halfway. So you're telling me that in those points, it was okay for you to fucking reach for that. So it's okay that you showed sportsmanship after being the Celtics, and they're saying that the Celtics didn't didn't shake your hands, but so then it makes it right for you guys to not do that to the Bulls after the after team that you the beat team, twice, yeah, and like, the third dude, time the Bulls finally you swept you guys, yeah, it's like you couldn't recognize that they were the better team. Michael Jordan, the most competitive fucking use you guys, use yeah, he used that as motivation to he his teammates. Went and it's like, no, they would play the next, and they were just the better team. That is what you fucking do. That's somebody who knows how to lose. And what does he do? I'm going into the fucking gym and weightlifting. I'm going to tell Terrence, hey, guys, let's go up to the yeah. gym and start training and so start getting ready. So he was willing to go against his own genetics and and lifestyle to get bigger and better for a team that he was that he didn't even see past the first past that last part of the finals. Albeit he did the work and they got other people to do the work, but it's hilarious that this an adult male like such as Isaiah Thomas who had such a mediocre career after his playing years that like. That sort of pettiness kind of bit him in the back because in the Dream Team shit, Magic and Bird had a final vote on to who they wanted as a point guard to start. They didn't get Isaiah Thomas. You're telling me Isaiah Thomas, the Detroit Pistons who beat the the fucking Celtics, and who beat the Celtics for the like the Eastern Conference? No, for the NBA, yeah, Eastern Conference final. Yeah, so like who beat them twice and their shit? You're telling me that like. Why wouldn't Bird pick Isaiah Thomas? Why? Because it shows you right there. Like, these players, like, they're not, you know, they're just, it's all that, all competitive sports is ego. So, you have two of the best players, arguably, ever, during the 80s, um, well into the early 90s, Dream Team times. And, like, Jordan brings that up, and then after seeing that clip, you see him, and it's like, oh, no, that's bullshit. Whatever this guy's saying, it's like, it's complete shit. Which is true. And, like, you could see the, his body language, the way he's laughing. It's like, oh, no, yeah, this guy can't. He just can't admit that he was wrong for doing something. And his body language is John Sally, who was part of that team. Yeah. Who eventually, you know, he, later on, if people don't forget, he played on the Bulls championship between 95 and 96. Yeah. And he was surprised when the Bulls were looking for reinforcers. They brought him along. Yeah. And he was, he was surprised when that, because um, he shook their hands. He became the bigger person. He, you know, he's like, yeah, Bill Lambeer, Isaiah walked off, you know, they because they didn't want to do it. He was, he, he was on the bench when they were saying, oh, we're not going to shake their hands. And John Sally, you know, seeing, you know, that motivation to the Bulls, seeing the eyes through Michael, saying like, hey, we beat these guys twice in the playoffs, and they finally beat one on us. Yeah. We, were their, we were their motivation. We were like, you know, we were the hurdle that the Bulls needed to be to get to the championship, to get to that, you know, the pedestal, top of the pedestal. 
he saw that in the Bulls. He saw that Michael. That's why he's like, I shook their hands. I don't care. I shook their hands because. Oh, and he's a nice guy, but he's like uh, he yeah, shook their hands. And people don't realize, dude, Robert Parrish played with the Bulls as well. He was like on the bench too, and he was like ninety six, yeah, ninety seven. The Bulls, the they had they to, but Jordan like, had respect for those players. He yeah. had high respect. But to me, like, yeah, I, I, I kind of like when my MJ saw that, you know, with Conscience Day Thomas, and to me, I thought they were bullshit too. Oh god, yeah. But it's like you see in sports now, people congratulate. Yeah, you lost, but you still like congratulate people. It's, it's like it's sportsmanship. It's, it's just recognizing that in it's soccer, a game. they change jerseys. They exchange jerseys at their matches, showing of respect. It's like it's a game. But I mean, yeah, back then NBA in the early nineties was really competitive. It was that you know egos ran the teams. That's what it was, egos. But yeah, to me, it was like, oh, Boston. I'm not. You could have been the bigger person. But it, I think to me that he, had, him, and Bill Beer had that ego factor. It was the ego factor because yeah, we were the best. We beat the Bulls. You know, we were beating these upstarts, and the upstarts finally beat us. But I, for me, if I was Isaiah Thomas, I would just simply say, hey, you know what? They finally beat us. We beat on them for the past two years. They finally beat us. Let's give them respect, saying, hey. Maybe it's their time to shine. But no, he decided to be a bitch and run and walk away. And that's what Jordan didn't say. And he, he said himself, they were being like bitches. <laughs> yeah, that was funny hearing him say Horace that. Grant said this. Horace Grant, yeah, Horace Grant said that. Oh, which sorry. has been a meme of these past couple days, which is great to see Horace do all that because he's had his ups and downs with the Bulls himself, which I think we're going to be going into a Horace episode. Um, but some things I did want to highlight from the fourth episode because it does it is different than the third one. Because um, I do what I do like about this documentary is that it's kind of bouncing back and forth. I mean, with these last two episodes, it had a better concentration compared to the first two. But um, something that was noted from the from that second the fourth episode is that. Which we're kind of talking about is that the Bulls had to reinvent themselves. So it's like Michael going into the gym and having a and starting up a weightlifting program so he can get stronger to take the you know. Uh, and then telling guys, like, hey, we're gonna go. We're yeah. gonna telling his teammates like after the Bulls were eliminated by Pistons, like off season, like hey, let's go and start training together. Like BG Armstrong said himself that hey, we all started you know training. Together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's like. Uh, and, and I mean, it talks about that and uh, and what it and like how it kind of gets reflected into the '98 season with how they kind of have to understand what players' quirks are. So that's how they mentioned the Rodman thing with the 48 hours, the 48 hour weekend vacation. He was told or he was given it at the time. Um, and one thing, at least in this specific article, they noted, which was hilarious, is that uh, there's a moment. I'm pretty sure it's the fourth episode. The 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 personal bodyguard team of Michael Jordan. Oh yeah, the Smith um, brothers. The Smith brothers. So Smith like, brothers. Right here, the, the trainer. Brothers, yeah. yeah. Um, they take a, a quote because Michael's putting on his like shoes and stuff, and it says that one of the stranger moments on the Sunday night was when the Bulls employee went to the locker room of Michael and five or six guys in suits just standing there on the wall, like kind of like in a circle around him as he's like getting his shoes on. And he's dressed and all that, and it says that like that he introduced he Jordan himself introduces them. It's like, oh, this is the Sniff Brothers, and then they ask him why the hell he got the name, and he's like, oh, they got the name because, and and uh, the, and somebody mentions it's like, oh, it's because they all sniff his Jordan's jockstrap. So if you can kind of an estimate like or kind of guesstimate what that 
entails or what that means. And that's the fact that like they're just all over Michael in a sense, like that's his personal team. So we don't really get a glimpse of that, but there's like, that'd be crazy. Like to get a whole documentary on that would be hilarious. <laughs> Cause like the, the, to understand the shit they've probably seen with Michael Jordan being his personal detail team, that's mm-hmm. six guys. Like you have, I'm sure they have stories for fucking days because I, I for one, like, they all looked interesting as hell. They're all there. Like, it seemed pretty calm. And obviously, Michael is close to them that he's able to be like, oh, yeah, they're the guys who sniff my fucking dick. Like, it's... To hear that from the guy who pays you, you're going to have to suck it up. But, like, it's, it's interesting to see that they had to, like, throw that in randomly. And then also, too, the one thing that was kind of hilarious, too, that one of the last few minutes of the documentary, when they went back to, like, the current time, like, January 98, it was after the Super Bowl when the Broncos beat the Packers. And, like... MJ, I guess, made a bet for the Broncos. And he's showing Jordan, showing the camera. Oh, he got 100 bucks from Ron Harper. Oh, yeah. He was picking on Scott Burrell because I guess Scott Burrell was yeah. hungover. He kept picking on him. He's like, boy, where is it filming in his camcorder? It was Jordan liked the... Like, Jordan was... I would say, if you think about it, based on the, like, the clips when they're on the bus and stuff, they like to gamble. They played cars. They're making money. making money. And here's the thing. Here's what Nick Paula said. This is what Nick Paula said in the article. And he talks about... The thing I'm talking about with the Jordan, it says here, let me show it. Jordan smiles, he held a firm $100 bill to the camera. Michael made $33.14 million during the 1997-98 season, $6 million more than the rest of the roster combined. So the money won from the Super Bowl bet with Ron Harper hardly meant much. Still, seeing exactly how Michael never turned off his competitive fire away from the, from the floor has been incredible. He was always competing at something, finding random quirks of his teammates to poke at, or looking for a way to get the last word and during any conversation, anything to keep that edge. And you saw that one. He was like picking on Scott Bro because he was picking on because he was probably drunk. He's hungover and stuff. He's drinking coffee and stuff. He's like, oh, let's show this. Let's show this to the camera and stuff. Like, hey, look at your boy. He's like hungover. And I think MJ's like at the same time. Yeah. He, like, same thing when playing golf. They said that, like, Danny A's, like, he, Jordan was competitive. And when Jordan gave Pippen, when Pippen was a rookie, he gave Pippen, like, a set of golf clubs. But I think he wanted Pippen to go play golf with him, but to take his money. Mm. Because you see, based on articles, like Jordan was competitive. Like even outside of basketball, he was competitive at anything. But it shows like he has a competitive drive that he never let it. Like he never turned it off. And you know, it's like it's crazy. And then now, and of course, the last tale of the episode we want to bring up is when he beat the Lakers. Which yeah, to me, you know, they came off being Detroit. They kind of show that you know, game one of the NBA Finals, ninety-one NBA Finals against the Magic against the Lakers. They show the Bulls play terrible because they came off that high of uh, beating Detroit, getting over the hurdle. But the first game of the Finals, they pretty much tanked. Yeah, it was uh, a. to Sam Perkins to make that game well, winning shot. Was terrible too. One of six. Like he, the first two quarters, he was shooting bad. And remember, the, and they talked about the migraine game. Yeah. That's one thing we forgot to point out was the migraine game. Just, it showed, I mean, it showed the, the persistence of Pippen and for what it's worth. And then, of course, after game one, the finals of 91, they, they, they got motivated to go on and beat the Lakers in their own court. And Shawn Michael was, you know, crying with the championship because it was like a devastating for him because it's like coming off and finally hugging that trophy. Yeah, After struggling so much, and then because his players never. Well, like Magic Johnson, which I kind of like Magic did what he did with Notre Dame. He between the lockers, he ended up going congratulate Michael, embrace him, saying congratulations, and even he said it was nice that if any person he will lose to, he was glad he lost to Michael. He saw that he was glad to lose to him because he saw the potential this player had 
you know, remember, Mike, Magic was there when Jordan was a rookie. But seeing that, you know, he even he has a lot of respect for MJ, you know, to the point he was willing to lose to him. Like, he was glad that he lost to him because it's like, um, he, you know, Magic had that rivalry with Bird. Even through their college days, they had that rivalry as well. But, you know, because, um, you know, Magic played for Michigan State and, you know, Larry Bird played for Indiana. Yeah. So... It's like having that respect for his rival, but, you know, able to finally to lose to MJ, you know, like, is showing him being the bigger person and having a lot of respect for Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. So, honestly, it was cool. Bulls won 91. That was the beginning of, of the dynasty. And I kind of like what this documentary does. It doesn't support just, like, the last season they're together, but it shows, like, other aspects of the whole thing. Because it gives people, like, people of today, like, kids of the day, to see what their parents experienced when they were young. Yeah. So, um, like I said, like five and six, it looks like five and six is going to talk about the dream team. I think episode five was showing like a clip that possibly the dream is going to be discussion. And they're probably going to talk about the 92 championship as well. Um, what's your biggest takeaway so far in this documentary? I mean, we're four episodes in. Um, I like how they are providing stuff that we might not have known of at the time and seeing more or less more 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 perspective on Michael and how he is personally as a, outside of the game and what he thought as of his teammates and what they're trying to accomplish because we only we only get it from his eyes as a winner and like somebody as prolific as him and i think it's better that also that they're actually giving other players on that team, their time to actually like chime in, give a profile on who they were because they were just as important to his win. And I think that's the problem is that, like, yes, Michael's the best, honestly, to ever do it, but at the same time, you have to recognize that it's not, he's only as good as his team. And at the same time, they had it. So these players were no, no, they weren't like fucking shoddy by their own rights. They were good. So it's, it's nice to see that they're actually giving the time of day. Um, I mean, and we're only starting with Pippen and Robin and Phil, so we're like, we're doing the big guys, and, and on this specific page, there's like a separate link mm-hmm. that is saying like, and it's written by the same author, Nathan Scott, that says, where's Tony Kukoc in the last dance, and this is, he put this the same day, um, which I'm sure we're gonna get a bit, because Tony Hopefully Kukoc, we get him, because that's... changed the game a lot, too. Um, I think what's gonna show... It's probably that dream team because remember they played against Tony Kukoc because he played for Croatia. So that's... no, right? But like he changed the NBA game too. People don't realize that as well. Then he gets underrated, especially because of his size. But I think it's also because he was on a prolific Bulls team and he came off the bench, so like it was different for his type of caliber player. But I want to see like what his I want to see. Yeah, because I, mean, I mean we hear from Steve Kerr, we hear from Bill Wennington. I mean we got we're hear... getting all these known players. And but there's still other players that should be interviewed, and and I think that's what it lacks, is is the fact that they're not showing, a, a well all around. Like we got a little bit of Horace Grant. I'm sure we're gonna get a Horace Grant. B.J. Armstrong, Charles a Oakley, B.J. Armstrong, Charles Oakley, who was there in the '80s, like who was George once George. That's nice, friends. but he wasn't in the Last Dance, and that's my problem with this is that like. We don't. We get a decent amount of the '98 season, but we really don't. We're getting a lot of like background into well, the I mean, of Jordan, and it gets annoying because if you want that shit, that's great. But for it being the last dance, you have to focus on the whole nine, like that '98 season, getting up to it. Like we get the 
we get the methods behind the madness. I understand that. But these little flashbacks and, and, and bringing a different story, that's cool and all. It's great. But if you're trying, if you're trying to tell the narrative of that last dynamic season mm. of the Bulls winning the championship, I don't understand why you have to focus so much on 80s Jordan coming up and all that, where it's like, at the end of the day, if you wanted to do that, then why didn't you just make it the, the last dance, the dynasty of the fucking Chicago Bulls in the 90s, as opposed to just focusing on the last season, which you're giving us maybe, in total, 20 minutes? Well, I mean, I mean yeah, I mean, that's one like, of the biggest gripes, too. Like, I, I don't understand. I did. I don't, like, documentaries are, you're supposed to take it with, you know, skin on cheek. Just yeah. take it for what it is. It's, it's going to give you a perspective on certain things. But right. I don't understand. Okay, speaking of Tony, because I know you mentioned Tony Kukoc, hopefully the episode six will focus on him. Yeah, it's still early, right? We don't we're still, remember, this is kind of part, so we're still early on this. Um, this is from Zach Lowe. He wrote, he's the ASMA senior writer. He wrote this. Um, a few days after the Bulls won their sixth championship, Phil Jackson organized a dinner for players, coaches, and their wives at the Chicago restaurant. By the way, through he gathered players into a private area. They sat in a circle, drinks, and cigars, and they each made one toast. This is what Kerr said. It was so special because that was the last moment we were all ever ever all together and Kerr he's like this is what Kerr said I said a toast to Tony Kukoc nobody had to go through what he did the pressure from MJ and Scotty to earn his keep Michael and Scotty are all over him about being Jerry Krause's guy and Tony yeah. just wanted to play so I just want to say a toast to Tony because I thought he was such a great player I want him to know how much he meant to our team yeah, he was a fucking beast. I mean, like, he was six man. Remember, Tony Kukoc won six man well, a year. That's the problem is that like he was a fu- like dude. No, his Olympic numbers were insane. His play, his numbers in Croatia were insane. He honestly, he was a Croatian Scottie Pippen. He was yeah. number one player. It says here, um, Kukoc doesn't remember. Like, Kurt he won toast. a thing for the Olympics. Like he was no slouch, man. He was a fucking monster. Oh, look, look what he said there. This was um, this is a surprising degree. He had a little interest in rehashing Chicago's glory years. I lived it. Kukoc said. <laughs> I lived it. <laughs> he said, Phil was good at keeping us in a bubble. We focused on what was in front of us. By watching the last dance, I'm going to find things I had no idea happened. It says there, even as a dominant teenager, I'm probably the greatest American national team ever. Kukoc loved the group dynamic sports. He experienced the powerful friendship and chemistry with Dino Raja, Drazen Petrovic, Lani Divac, and other stars in the former Yugoslavia. He saw that the vibe in the NBA. Reliving the vibe between Kraus and the players hurts him now. I wish Jerry was here to say his part of the story. Kukoc said it's easy to like Michael and Scotty and Dennis and Phil. I like them all. I love them. Scotty was the ultimate team player. Michael was always, to me, the best player ever. He changed the game. He made a goal. But every player today should tip their hats on. But you have to hear the other side. Jerry built the six-time champions. You have to give him credit. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, it says here, um, Kraus lost it after Kukoc and selected him in the second round of 1990. Kukoc did not sign with the Bulls until 93, fearing that he would waste prime years on the bench. He was also making more money in Europe. He says, I was indecisive that I should, if I should come. Says Cross and Tyson with the visions of running the break alongside Jordan Pippen, but also spoke of the value in playing with grinders and leaders like John Paxson and Bill Carver under the great coach we had in Jackson. Um, this is with Clarence Gaines Jr., a longtime Bulls scout who traveled around with Cross to watch Kuko. It was courtship. Jerry could be charming when he needed to be. Yeah. I think that's what happened when Jordan, like, I think hopefully this dream team kind of talks about it because I guess um, based on what this was, is um, Jordan and Kuko saw him as Jerry's guy because Jerry wanted him. Yeah. So, and this is a good article. I'm not going to go for Bam, but definitely this is on ESPN right now. Um, definitely read this article. It's actually, it was published yesterday. 
but definitely check it out. Zach Lowe wrote it, but it, I mean, Tony Kukoc won six men a year. Uh, Steve Kerr, people don't realize he was a three um, three point scoring champion in the All Star game. Was in ninety seven. So Bulls had like a lot of weapons on that team, but of course the big focus is on MJ, Scotty, and Robin because they were the big three. Think about it, they were our big three because you know how in today's NBA there was there's the big three. You know, it started with you know with uh, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen. Then it was Shaq. Um, it was um, Shaq, Wade, and who else was there on the Heat in that time? And then you had um, LeBron, Wade, and Chris Bosh. Kevin Durant, you know, he jumped chimed in as well. But honestly, like, I'm locking it. Hopefully, you know, episode five and six, you know, I saw, like, there was a short clip of uh, the Dream Team. It was, like, a short clip, quick um, preview. And hopefully they'll talk about the whole, you know, Tony Kukoc was scouted in 1990. And maybe they'll talk about that. Hopefully they'll get into that. Like, even Tony Kukoc said himself, I'm learning stuff by watching this documentary. I'm learning stuff I never yeah, knew about. it's so weird. Like, I mean, I, like to be to be in their, well, hopefully their nice means of living, but to... It's got to be fucking surreal to see, I guess, something that you lived through in, in a fucking weird... ESPN documentary streaming while everyone's at home watching you watching something that you live through well in, in this case like Tony Kukoc but to see all this play out on TV and to get a new lens and new people watching it and you're just like it's gotta be a little frustrating too like he mentioned it's like it sucks that Jerry isn't here to describe this thing and you watch them kind of like I mean, I'm not they, saying like, he's I, a villain. I didn't know the stuff. Like, I never talked. I never talk about people like I know them personally because people, like people, I, the same people who can say that shit, the same people who like talk shit about, like we'll say, like Kanye West or something. To where it's like, Ooh, he's like, have you hung out with him? No. Do you know him personally? No. Then I won't talk shit. But like, with this stuff, it does kind of suck to see that like they, they really Jerry were Cross. a dick to him. But at the end of the day. He was a big factor in this Because game. he was able to go out there and get the pieces to build a championship. It's like, like that's why he did his fucking job. But this is people see him like as the villain he's doing that broke it up. But yeah, he has his ego time in. It's like it's like the it was Eagles. It was a battle like I said, it's the battle of the Eagles. That was annoying. Which to me, like and then it was a funny thing too, like the there was an article where Dennis was interviewed again and saying if the Bulls were stuck together for one more year, if you know Jerry became the bigger man until Phil, hey, let's do it one more time at least and just sign Phil to a one-year deal. Then start rebuilding in the year 2000. They could have won 99. Oh, dude, this guy goes pretty in-depth. They could have won 99. San Antonio would have been the champions. But, of course, at that time, you know, NBA wasn't a lockout season. That's why Jordan had to wait till January to announce that he wasn't coming back. Mm-hmm. Because he couldn't do anything because it was this whole CBA agreement and stuff with the NBA and the union. Well, he was also going through the alleged rumors of him going through his gambling problems as well. I think. Oh, that's but, one thing. Hopefully, episode six shows or episode I don't five think, and six. I don't think they're not Jordan's about retirement from his first retirement. I don't think they're going to talk about it. His first retirement? I don't think they will. Yeah, this is that rumor. I honestly don't think they will because it's just something that I if, think about it. He had a they had to sign a crazy NDA for this for Jordan to even give him this shit. And for that, like, I'm sure he's been getting nonstop questions about, about why he why, left the line in 94. Yeah, 93. What his true intentions were of having to lay low, I want to say. Lay low. Yeah, I think there's a myth that I was, like, talking about that. 
But hopefully, like I said, if it doesn't spoil, if they do, like you said, they keep going back to like the timeline wise. If they do talk about in the next couple episodes about Jordan leaving after ninety three, it'd be nice. Let's see what I'm curious to see what he said. Nice. Because there's documentaries where saying, "Oh, he had no motivation." Because I mean, I had the old documentaries, but the funny thing, I had the old bulls, but the here years later now. I mean, you see Jordan; he's opening stuff up now. He's talking about stuff on the road when he was going through the league, like growing up in the league, about the whole the bulls traveling cooking. So he's op- he's opening up now. So we'll see. Hopefully, it does dive in when he left in '93 when he took that 18 month sabbatical from the NBA and played baseball. So hopefully it does explore that. And um, like I said, definitely, guys, definitely check out The Last Dance. Um, I believe you got the ESPN app or ESPN Plus. You can actually check the episodes. I know they're going to – I think this Sunday they're going to repeat 3 and 4 and they're going to show 5 and 6. I believe they show like 8 and 9, respectfully. But definitely check it out. I believe you can go on the ESPN app and watch the replays of it. Or if you have the ESPN Plus as well, you can check it out like the, the those episodes. And repeat. So definitely check that out, guys. Um, anything before we wrap up, Pico? No, I just hope that they kind of expose or expose. Get the hope that they show more, more. Uh, I want to say more perspectives um, from the other players that were on the Bulls roster during that last season, and they were able. To, and I, I ho- would hope that the documentary takes a better turn for what their, their concentrated content is because I just feel like the jumping back and forth I get why they do it but it's just like from a narrative standpoint I don't understand like you don't at least it doesn't give me the feeling of what they're actually trying to do because I, I love the title of this fucking documentary The Last Dance but they're not really talking about it they'll like go for 5-10 minutes ad and then they go back to what like makes Jordan angry and I'm just like this is cute and all, I understand this, but it's like, it makes me feel also like, wow, these guys are fucking still holding on to ego shit like that. Like, they just aren't any different than the old man on the block complaining about people on their fucking stepping on the grass. It's like, not any different, but I would hope that they hopefully talk about Tony Kukoc or talk about Horace Grant because he was an important part of that team to lead up to it, but I just would hope that they would spend more time on the actual last season of the the championship bulls, honestly, Hopefully. because it's so important, and this is the whole point of the fucking documentary, and they don't really spend too much time on it, and that's what annoys me. But yeah. I and do like, but it's like I like for a fact too was it's there's, not my documentary. It's not it's this documentary. Look how many years it took to finally get released. But as I'm saying, for something that's been so withheld, it seems really basic. <laughs> like it's it. The cues and stuff, the footage to get, like, the way it wraps is very nice. But the, the general direction of the narrative, it doesn't make any, like, it, it doesn't have a lot of cohesion in it. No. It's just kind of, like, dances around things. Like, even the Pippin thing, it was okay, but we we just got Pippin dancing around a lot of the answers of to why. He wanted that trade. And yeah, so, they yeah. don't never talk about it. They just, they, they paint him out to be, like, this idiot thing of why would you take that deal with him? Yeah, why would you? But well, at so, the same time, like so, hopefully, like I said, hopefully, looking forward to uh, five or six to explore Tony Kukoc's this side, and we'll see. Like I, I said, would hope. I would hope because I. So like definitely, it. guys, check it out. The Last Dance currently is on the ESPN app and ESPN Plus. Like I said, they're going to show the new episodes on Sundays. 
Um, like I said, the next few weeks is going to be just discussing the last dance, and once things get back eventually back to normal, we'll talk about other topics. But if you guys have any uh, any topic ideas or you have any opinions on the last dance documentary, you can go on our Facebook page, look for Talking Pop with the franchise and Miko on Facebook. Post your comments on there. If you have any, you know. Any other thing, you can find me on Twitter at the franchise 85 Biko, do you want to share any socials? Or you're, I know you're not, not much of a... Not at the moment. Okay. <laughs> no. I, I, uh... But yeah, you can find me at the franchise 85 on Twitter if you have any... If you have any comments or reactions to The Last Dance. And like I said, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We're available on Apple, Google, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. Um, and like I said, we have a store on Teespring. If you listen to that dynamic ad at the middle of this episode... Definitely check out our shirts. We got shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, you name it. It has our logo. Um, I am working on trying to design new t-shirts to be available on Teespring. I'm going to work on a Beagle shirt and eventually a Fanchai shirt. Um, I have to work on a design and, you know, we'll see how it goes. And like I said, um, like I said, we love doing this, talking about pop culture stuff. But to me, this thing is kind of like the biggest thing in pop culture was the Bulls epitomize pop culture. But yeah, it's sports. But at the same time, sports are part of the pop culture life as well. So these are icons I grew up on. So hopefully you guys are enjoying our discussion on The Last Dance. Like I said, we're basically almost at the halfway point. So don't forget, 5 and 6, we'll be here this Sunday on ESPN. Definitely check it out. And that's all I got for you guys. I am the franchise. I'm Biko. As always, geek on, take care, and wash your hands.